Welcome to the Platinum Trust Quarterly Report for the September 2020 quarter. For disclaimers, please visit our website, platinum.com.au, under Terms and Conditions. In this episode, along with Andrew Clifford's latest macro overview, we'll read out a piece from Bianca Ogden around a diversified vaccination strategy and a piece from James Foreman on the bracelet and jewellery brand Pandora. Along with that, we'll cover each of the portfolio managers uh, have various comments on stocks which we've been buying and some of the uh, situations in particular markets. The full report is available online. So starting with Andrew Clifford's macro overview, and over the last three months, stock markets have continued to rally strongly as economic activity started to recover from the depths of this COVID-induced recession. As a result of the lockdowns put in place to control the virus spreading, there have been significant changes in spending and working patterns across economies. And it's these changes, together with rapid and large increases in money supply, that have unleashed a speculative mania in high-growth companies and other beneficiaries of the changing environment, while the balance of the market remains mired in a traditional bear market. And we believe that extreme caution is warranted in regards to the market's current high flyers, while the real opportunities abound elsewhere. And we don't believe that all changes in spending patterns will be sustained. Now, many of these changes make sense given the circumstances. Faced with being either unable to or not wanting to leave the house to shop, many consumers have taken to ordering groceries online for the first time. In many locations, there's evidence of new adopters continuing to use these services, even as restrictions have eased. There are lots of examples in this category, including video streaming services like Netflix or video conferencing products like Zoom. Some of the changes have been more surprising. For example, in the US, we've seen extraordinarily strong new home sales. In one sense, the lift in home sales is understandable as people opt for a different location or type of residence in an era of more flexible working arrangements, particularly the ability to work from home. The cost of financing major purchases such as homes and cars has also fallen with lower interest rates. However, for households to take on such major commitments in the midst of a deep recession and extraordinary uncertainty is concerning. And what's often overlooked when observing changing spending patterns is they have been funded by a collapse in spending elsewhere, such as travel and restaurants. In a post-COVID environment, when we can once again spend money on activities, the boost in spending in other areas will likely wane. For some areas where activity is transferred from offline to online, such as grocery shopping, this may hold up. But even here, growth rates are likely to fade as these businesses will have moved closer to maturity. One area of change spending that will likely persist for some time is government spending. However, the emphasis of government spending will likely shift from shorter-term support measures, such as the JobKeeper payment scheme in Australia, to longer-term projects such as infrastructure and incentives for investment. Environmental issues, sorry, initiatives to reduce the use of fossil fuels and plastics, for instance, are likely to be an ongoing part of government spending in much of the world. Changes in spending patterns have often reinforced investors' views of different sectors held prior to the pandemic. Businesses benefiting from changes in behaviour were in many cases ones that were already growing quickly, such as most forms of e-commerce from online shopping to food delivery, online computer games, video streaming. And other favoured investments prior to the pandemic included defensive investments like consumer staples that have seen sales grow not only from stocking up pantries as lockdowns came into effect, but from greater consumption as people spend more time at home. On the other hand, the more cyclical businesses already struggling due to the US-China trade war and low growth, such as commodity producers, have suffered even further due to the collapse in economic activity. 
Over the last two years, we've discussed on numerous occasions how investors faced with low interest rates have sought better returns from asset classes they might have otherwise have avoided, such as equities. As this has come at a time of already great uncertainty, such as rising geopolitical tensions, and with many traditional businesses disrupted by e-commerce and other technology, investors have tended to show a preference for perceived low-risk businesses. Predominantly, these were in high-growth areas, or they were very defensive, like consumer staples, real estate, utilities, and infrastructure. And at the same time, investors were avoiding businesses with any degree of uncertainty or cyclicality. While some businesses, such as those in the travel-related sector, including infrastructure such as airports or real estate, such as CBD offices and shopping malls, have changed from being in the loved high-growth uncertainty grouping to the neglected cyclical and uncertainty grouping, by and large, the economic impacts of the pandemic have reinforced investors' pre-existing views and preferences. This is particularly dangerous for investors as our cognitive biases come to the fore. And we've talked at length historically, and it's well documented, that our cognitive biases play a major role in decision-making. And when it comes to investing, we're deeply exposed to the role of these biases. The short summary is that investors tend to overemphasize and overextrapolate short-term trends and events whether good or bad. And this makes the current moment in time particularly worrisome. Prior to the pandemic, investors already held enthusiastic views of the prospects of many of the fast-growing companies. These views have now been reinforced even further by the additional boost to revenues that they have received. As share prices move rapidly higher, this further reinforces the idea that these companies will make great investments. But ultimately, the value of a business is determined by the entirety of its future profits for 10 years and beyond. The question is whether the boost to the short-term picture justifies the significant share price rises that have occurred. In some cases, it may well do. We've seen some companies expected to be loss-making for a number of years turn profitable far sooner. However, there's plenty of complexity in assessing the prospects of fast-growing companies, especially when one must make assessments of revenues and prospects into the distant future. The role of excess money creation provides an alternate story for why share prices of growth stocks are running hard. So while there's much discussion around the potential of the new economy, the other factor at play in the rebound in markets is this rapid growth in money supply. And as we discussed last quarter, this increase in money circulating the economy reflects the way governments have funded their monetary and fiscal policy initiatives. When the growth in money supply exceeds economic output, it will necessarily result in inflation. And although it's not yet appeared in goods and services, it has appeared in asset prices, such as bonds and some parts of the stock market. Is it the bright prospects of growth stocks have driven markets, or is it the inflationary effects of the printing presses? And we'd answer this by looking at valuations. What we see across many of the much-loved stocks of the moment are valuations that are hard to justify no matter how bright their prospects are. As an example, the market value of Tesla today is around 400 billion US dollars, while the company is expected to sell about 480,000 vehicles this year. Compare this with Toyota, valued at just under 200 billion US dollars, which will likely sell around 9.5 million vehicles, or around 20 times more than Tesla. And of course, this comparison doesn't do justice to Tesla's achievement in leading the electric vehicle revolution and the developments they're driving in battery technology. But it could be argued that Toyota, having launched the first hybrid electric vehicle, the Prius, in 1997, knows a thing or two about making and selling electric cars. Now, while the prospects of Tesla are most certainly bright in our view, and ultimately they may achieve enough to justify this lofty valuation, 
the company must still jump a huge hurdle just to meet current market expectations. So the run-up in the market is not just about the valuations of one or two hot stocks that are inconsequential in size. There are many stocks, and in aggregate, the market capitalizations of these high flyers run into hundreds of billions, even trillions of dollars. And this phenomenon is well understood and splashed across the front pages of the financial press. Yet it continues. Perhaps equally disturbing is the safe and comfortable option to invest in growth has been in companies like Microsoft, Facebook, Alphabet and Apple. Fine companies with good prospects, ignoring any antitrust concerns. But they've steadily revalued over time and now trade at generous valuations, though nowhere near as challenging as Tesla. Which brings us back to the question of money printing. If it's the inflationary effects of money printing that has driven stocks to lofty levels, it probably needs to continue to keep the market rally going. And at the time of writing, additional stimulus measures are being debated in the US. Whether there's agreement before the election or not, it's probably a reasonable assumption that in the next 18 months, governments around the world will continue to increase their spending, and it will probably be funded by borrowing from the banking system. However, as economies start growing again, excess money creation over economic output will most likely reduce. The risk for investors in equity markets today is the highly valued growth stocks. The opportunity in the markets today is in companies that will benefit as we move into a post-COVID environment. Now, there's much discussion about this new world for investing or a new paradigm marked by interest rates at or around zero for the foreseeable future and the never-ending march of new technology continually changing the business landscape. This new environment renders all the old rules of investing null and void. Perhaps? Or is this just another version of the four most expensive words in investing? This time is different. Alternatively, it might just be a good old-fashioned bull market driven by a great story and excess money supply, reinforced by cognitive biases that lead us to emphasise recent events and trends. There are plenty of warning signs to suggest what we have here is simply a speculative mania. A buoyant market for new listings, with companies often debuting on the market at prices as high as 50% or more above issue. High levels of retail investor activity, not just in shares, but also in options. The stories of fortunes made and lost overnight by small investors are regularly shared on internet blogs and even in the traditional financial press. And every good bull market needs an innovative financing vehicle. And this time we have SPACs, the special purpose acquisition companies. The premise being that investors invest their cash in a SPAC and the promoters will find a great company to buy from the private markets with the funds. If you've not been around long enough, it sounds very familiar as this was the cash box listings in the bull market of the 80s, and most of these didn't end well for investors. What brings it to an end and when that happens are the great unanswerable questions, as has always been the case in past speculative markets. One thing we do know, though, is that manias tend to end suddenly and abruptly. The significant bull markets of the last 40 years have come to an end when monetary conditions tightened. Typically, this has been marked by rising interest rates, which for the moment seems inconceivable. Perhaps a slowing of money creation, a time when economic activity is rising, will represent the tightening in liquidity, even if interest rates do not budge significantly. Perhaps it will simply be when we're clear of lockdowns and restrictions and the level of permanent business closures and job losses is much greater than thought and prospects for listed companies are much bleaker than expected. Despite these unusual times, it's important to remain committed to our long-standing and consistent investment approach and focus on companies that others prefer to avoid. Assess their potential over the medium term and buy when their stock price implies an attractive return. So taking that specifically to the Platinum International Fund and the commentary in summary for the fund over the quarter 
noted that global equity markets continued their rally over the quarter, rising an additional 4%. And while it's recovering well, the damage in terms of business closures and job losses is far from clear. In the context of extraordinary uncertainty, this is a surprising performance by markets. Underlying the headline numbers, we have a two-speed share market, and the high-speed markets forging strongly ahead, led by fast-growing stocks. Meanwhile, the low-speed market comprises all other stocks that by and large are performing, as you would expect, during a major economic collapse. Over the last two years, we've steadily reduced our exposure to these higher growth names, which has impacted the fund's performance. Prior to COVID, these companies had achieved generous valuations that on average implied poor future returns. And the monetary and fiscal responses of central banks and governments around the world to the pandemic have created a huge inflationary pulse in asset prices, including these. Cautious positioning of the portfolio with respect to cash holdings and short positions has also detracted from the fund's performance. But at an individual stock level, our holdings in LG Chemical up 33%, FedEx up 79%, and Freeport McMoran up 35% provided the strongest performance over the quarter. Today, our portfolio consists of companies that typically have strong positions in their respective industries, are poised to benefit as economies recover in the post-COVID era over the next three to five years, and are attractively priced relative to our assessment of their prospects. While the opportunities that we see in the fund's holdings are reasons to expect that reasonable investment returns can be produced, there are likely to be any market, political and economic surprises ahead. And looking at some of the holdings that we added to the fund during the quarter, Largan Precision in Taiwan is the leading provider of camera lenses for mobile phones. Generally, component suppliers to phone makers have been out of favour due to flat sales and uncertainty created by US bans on the sale of technology to Huawei, the world's largest manufacturer of handset. We're of the view there'll be a pickup in handset sales as a result of investment by 5G networks and camera upgrades in new models. Of course, cameras have taken on even greater importance as a feature given the boom in video conferencing. Li Ning is a Chinese sports apparel business competing with the likes of Nike, Adidas and local companies such as Anta Sports Products, which we also hold in the fund. Li Ning was established by its namesake who won a gold medal in gymnastics at the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic Games. The brand was the original domestic sports brand but struggled for a number of years in what's been a torrid competitive environment. Improvements in product design and a refreshed brand have seen the company turn its fortunes around, resulting in strong improvement in sales and profits. Given the deterioration in US-China relations, we think Chinese consumers will show a tendency to move toward brands with Chinese heritage in the years ahead. And Interglobe Aviation is our most recent travel-related investment. The owner of India's largest airline, Indigo, whose low-cost carrier model started in 2006 and has become the dominant airline in India with almost half the domestic passenger market. India is already the third largest domestic air travel market behind only the US and China, with over 140 million annual trips pre-COVID and growing about 10% a year. The company is poised to continue its impressive growth rate for some time to come, given the low penetration of air travel in India relative to other emerging markets. In the Platinum One Hedge Fund, Clay Smolinski talks about how he thinks about investing in this environment. And one scenario being that the low interest in interest rate environment could continue for a long time, though this is the consensus scenario held by investors today, although not without good reason. Central banks around the world are holding rates low as economies are weak and they want to facilitate and encourage governments to spend and to create employment and activity. The clear winners from this environment have been the quality growth stocks with huge investor demand for businesses that can steadily grow, earn high returns on capital with strong barriers to entry. 
The task for us is not to buy the current batch of Love Growth stocks, but to identify companies that could be the growth stocks of tomorrow, but are not yet priced for it. And a good example of this is our investment in Trip.com Group. Trip.com is China's largest online travel agency, and the business makes the bulk of its money from commissions from selling hotel rooms and flights. A simple illustration of the growth potential for Trip.com is the trend in Chinese outbound travel. Today, China is the largest outbound tourist market in the world, which, excluding Hong Kong and Macau, recorded 75 million outbound flights last year, growing at 15% per annum. The potential for growth becomes apparent when you realize China has achieved this despite less than 15% of Chinese nationals holding a passport. With the tailwind of market growth, it's clear that Trip.com has the potential to grow strongly for many years to come. But due to COVID crisis, we could buy this at about 13 times last year's earnings. The other scenario to consider is the end goal of all the fiscal stimulus and central bank action. It's clear the mandate of the US Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank has moved away from inflation control towards restoring full employment and activity. Governments are embracing higher fiscal spending, with even the fiscally disciplined Germans opening the purse strings and actively encouraging other European Union nations to join them in spending more. The end goal of full employment clearly helps more cyclical businesses, and when the valuation difference between these stocks is at historical extremes, we think it makes sense to have a decent portion of portfolios invested in these areas. An example of an investment fitting this mould is Carrier Global. Carrier is predominantly a US-based manufacturer of air conditioning and transport refrigeration equipment with its carrier air conditioning and transi-code truck refrigeration brands being the leaders in the respective markets. Carrier is a classic quality industrial business. The US market is consolidated and the major players have locked up the distribution and after-sales service networks, which are key to winning market share. And the difficulty of entry is evident in the failure of Japanese and Chinese manufacturers to make inroad in the markets despite 20 years of trying. The business also has a nice regulatory driver in the form of tighter standards around the use of chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs and energy efficiency, providing a persistent technology upgrade cycle and the ability to charge for it. These industry characteristics allow Carrier to make high teen returns on capital and around 15% operating margins. The uncertainty around the pace of residential and commercial construction during lockdowns allowed us to buy Carrier on 11 times earnings, a deep discount to businesses of similar quality. So now we'll look around the regions and starting with Asia, um, we'll talk to Joe Lai's commentary about Asian economies, which have generally managed the pandemic well with a less aggressive monetary and fiscal response has been, is needed. Their equity markets rebounded mainly on improving earnings prospects rather than on ever-increasing valuations driven by money printing, which bodes well for the region's markets, as unlike the developed market peers, many valuations are not expensive and more stimulatory firepower is available if needed in the future. Given the region's dynamism, new sustainable trends that can prove fruitful for the fund continue to emerge and we continue to stick to our time-tested investment approach, remaining focused on the identification of these long-term trends being contrarian in our approach to take advantage of opportunities or to protect the portfolio, and generating significant insights through in-depth bottom-up work. Now, change brings opportunities, and identification of durable changes ahead of the market can generate significant investment returns. The abundance of these opportunities is why we're excited about Asia over the long term, despite the geopolitical noise. The rational base case remains. We believe the reforms undertaken will likely lead to an inexorable growth trajectory, and strong companies should thrive in their respective environments, irrespective of macro concerns. 
Indeed, market volatility and insightful bottom-up work has enabled us time and time again to take advantage of the wonderful opportunities on offer. In India, for instance, reforms have improved the ease of doing business ranking from 130th in 2016 to 63rd in 2019, according to the World Bank. Bureaucratic red tape and the associated self-enrichment have historically been hindrances to entrepreneurship, and they're being dismantled one by one. Recently, India passed agricultural reforms aimed at unshackling the sector and encouraging private enterprise to invest to improve efficiency and reduce waste. Allowing farmers to sell directly to private enterprises other than the state-mandated traders has the advantages of removing the middleman who added inefficiencies to the system. This will allow contract farming to take place, allowing bigger companies to source produce directly from farmers. And the reduction restrictions on agricultural produce storage is likely to encourage increased private investment in logistics and storage to reduce wastage, which has been a big problem for India. This will allow the market to have a bigger say in the allocation of the sector's resources. Labour market reform is another achievement. The new laws consolidate decades-old and outdated central government legislation and override the disparate and chaotic state government laws into a comprehensive set of rules. Previously, companies with more than 100 workers required government permission to lay off employees or close plants, and that cap has now increased to 300. It requires unions to provide prior notice and attempt conciliation before strike actions. Some states, like Rajasthan, implemented some elements of the labour laws in 2014 and have subsequently seen a significant pickup in business investment and average employee numbers, and this should spread to the rest of India. Together with reforms, the continual spend of infrastructure is accretive to growth. Reliance Industries was traditionally an oil refiner and petrochemical producer, but in the last 10 years it built the largest 4G network in India, growing a user base from zero to around 400 million in just four years, before embarking on an ambitious journey to link online and offline shops to Indian consumers via the smartphone. Facebook, Google and other US-based companies have recently invested billions of dollars in these assets. We had already added significantly to Reliance during the sell-off before the tech giants invested in this highly prospective assets. Indeed, the fund lifted its net exposure to Indian equities from 1% to 9% over the quarter, adding to strong businesses with strong solid balance sheets during the market volatility. Meanwhile, China's remained a contrarian but highly prospective investment opportunity. While geopolitics can be worrying and distracting, ultimately the region is dynamic and its countries are responding to changing circumstances. Recently, the Chinese authorities have pivoted to a new direction, dubbed dual circulation, a development model tilting towards a greater reliance on domestic sources for raw materials and end markets. Exports are not a huge driver of the Chinese economy, contributing around 20% only of China's national output. The intention of the reform process is to improve capital allocation to R&D, much-needed infrastructure and the people, so the economy's productivity can be increased. This will boost incomes and help realise the potential of a huge domestic consumer market. Wealthy consumers who spend more domestically will create long-term opportunities. For example, the Chinese passion for spending on luxury handbags overseas is well known. In fact, Chinese consumers make up 30-40% to 40% of global luxury spend. But most of that has occurred outside China. A significant change in consumer behaviour not being broadly recognised is that luxury consumption is moving back onshore to China. Product prices have been coming down rather than traditionally being higher in China than overseas. And we expect domestic luxury sales will double in the next few years. Recent numbers from Tiffany, Gucci and LVMH are showing very strong sales in domestic China in recent months. And they're running out of room in their shops and asking for little back rooms to store inventory. As part of the reforms to improve capital allocation, China's reforming financial markets to meet global best practice. The bond markets are already sizable, about 13 trillion US dollars, 
and major global financial firms have established majority-owned offices in China in recent months, including S&P, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, BlackRock and State Street. Various global bond indices have started, including Chinese bonds. And given the lack of growth opportunities globally, Chinese financial assets that are hitherto under-owned might be highly attractive, with Chinese government bonds offering significantly higher yields than most major economies, partly reflecting higher expected growth prospects. These opportunities are simply too big to ignore. Another element of reform is China's commitment to having a net zero carbon output by 2050, which will translate to a huge reduction in the usage of fossil fuels and a gargantuan deployment of alternative energy sources. As one of the world's largest industrial economies, this move, if it comes to fruition, is extremely meaningful in dealing with climate change. Of course, a side benefit for China will be a reduced reliance on imported oil and coal. As one of the world's lowest cost producers of solar panels, wind turbines and batteries, the renewables energy is set to blossom as it skyrockets from 15 to 75% of the total energy mix. India, China and the rest of Asia have more than 4 billion people. The region is dynamic and we have an opportunity to own companies that are leaders in their fields. They've invested billions of dollars in R&D and infrastructure over many years and as a result of this investment, they seize greater control over their destiny in these changing times. Now over in Europe, we've mentioned the travel theme a couple of times, but in Europe we've been investing in a company called Aeroport de Paris, or Airports of Paris. Airports are vital pieces of infrastructure with strong end market growth, and what distinguishes them from other infrastructure assets is despite being natural monopolies, they've somehow convinced regulators to allow them to capitalise on that captive growth through a number of unregulated side hustles. ADP owns a number of French airports, but their key asset is Charles de Gaulle, the second busiest airport in Europe and the international gateway to Paris. And at the risk of being overly sentimental, Paris is a very romantic city with an extremely rich cultural heritage, (coughs) drawing people of all ages and nationalities. And the relevance of this is that Paris is a destination in its own right, not merely a gateway to a wider tourism market. A destination airport is much more valuable than a gateway or a transit airport. ADP's share price halved since January and is trading at 2013 levels, despite revenue being 70% higher last year than it was in 2013, at odds with the market's ravenous appetite for infrastructure, assets and bond-like equities, particularly those with very long duration, like ADP. And the reason we can buy this asset at such an attractive price is obvious. Firstly, investors are reluctant to buy travel-related companies until they're convinced the COVID pandemic is ending. And secondly, they're particularly circumspect when it comes to long-haul international travel and business travel, expecting these types to recover slowly and to a lesser extent than the domestic or leisure travellers. We can sympathise with the view, but we cannot ignore the fact this is an extremely attractive asset, whose value is underpinned by natural monopoly characteristics and the attractiveness of Paris as a tourist and business destination. The pandemic hasn't changed neither its competitive position nor Paris's appeal. It's merely rendered ADP temporarily unable to capitalise on them. Once vaccines and therapeutics are widely available, we expect activity at Charles de Gaulle to resume and ultimately surpass the 2019 level. Until then, the business has the financial capacity to withstand a couple of turbulent years if necessary. And just to Scott Gilchrist's comment on Japan, the stability and continuity recently seen in Japan stands out against what seems like widespread global turmoil. Recently highlighted by the smooth political transition following Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's retirement for the second time due to ill health. He retired as the longest standing Prime Minister in Japanese political history. He had hoped to preside over the Tokyo Olympics to crown a successful seven and a half years as leader, 
but instead leaves in the wake of a global pandemic, which has undone a lot of progress. But the counterfactual is that without Abbey's stability and reform, the company would like, country would be likely be in a far worse position today. When he resigned for the first time in 2007, he was followed by five prime ministers in five years. His return in 2012 was heralded by his three arrows of monetary policy, fiscal policy and growth strategy, focusing on structural reform. The subsequent seven-year period has seen record low unemployment, high dividend payouts and increasing share buybacks. Many people are surprised to learn that Japan's, Japan's employment levels recently reached record levels, with higher female and broad employment gains leading to a higher participation rate. New Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga was Abe's Chief Cabinet Secretary for the last seven years, a fitting post for a lifetime politician with a long history of achievement. He was instrumental in the implementation of Abe's policies and as such is seen as a bearer of continuity and persistence. The big difference between the two is their backgrounds. Suga came from a relatively humble rural family of strawberry farmers and throughout his career he's focused on micro-reform. So his tenure is likely to continue Abe's three arrows, but with a greater emphasis on growth and reform. And it can be seen in his early focus on digital transformation, lower mobile telephone rates, and regional revitalization. Amazingly, for a country that's led the world in various technologies, physical stamps and fax machines still feature across the country. Pandemic statistics are being faxed to a central department in Tokyo for collation. We think these antiquated processes will see an overdue ramp in the coming years. So now to the three regional portfolios <clears throat> and to continue the travel theme uh, which has permeated this episode, in the technology portfolio, a stock we purchased in the June quarter and continue to add to, which we've mentioned on this call before, is Amadeus IT Group, a technology provider of transaction processing solutions to the global travel and tourism industry. Amadeus adds value to this industry in two ways. Firstly, it helps travel providers, primarily airlines, to sell their products to customers in the most efficient way through a large network of traditional and online travel agencies. Its core technology enables travel agents to do real-time search, pricing, booking and ticketing across about 489 airlines and 770,000 hotel properties. It's the leading player with 44% market share with two other global players, Sabre and Travelport, that are weaker both financially and technologically. Secondly, Amadeus helps airlines, hotels and airports to run various business critical processes like reservations, inventory and departure controls, saving the money by transforming a fixed cost into a variable cost. Covid's had a dramatic impact on travel related businesses and Amadeus has not been immune. But here lies the opportunity. Amadeus has initiated a cost saving programme that should contribute to structurally slightly higher profitability in a market they dominate. If one can look through the medium term business deterioration and believe people will eventually return to travelling again, Amadeus should emerge as an even stronger player against its competitors. Now, from the Brands Fund, James Foreman, the analyst, talks about Pandora's charm offensive. Charm bracelet and jewellery brand Pandora is one of the world's largest, with revenues of over $3 billion in 2019, and its success is notable given it has a different business model from other large jewellery brands like Tiffany and Cartier. Instead of high-priced luxury, Pandora sells excessively priced but high-quality jewellery, mostly made of silver. The customers typically begin with a bracelet and one or two charms and then go on to purchase further charms, even up to 15 to 20, to complete their bracelet. As a result, Pandora experiences strong loyalty effects. And this has found broad appeal and succeeded with customers of different ages across the world, from Europe to the US and Asia. Pandora has been a volatile stock 
since it listed in 2010, reflecting inconsistent results and large changes in investor opinion on whether the products will remain in demand or whether charm bracelets are a fad that consumers will tire of. They listed at 210 kroner. Good results and early optimism saw it rise to 350 kroner before plummeting 90% in 2011 as the sale for price spiked and the strategy to shift pricing upmarket annihilated its core customer base for whom affordability is important. Reversing this mistake as silver prices fell, Pandora grew sales from just over $1 billion to over $3 billion by 2016, expanding from 670 concept stores to over 2,000 during the period. And at this time, the stock traded back as high as 1,000 kroner. From 2016 onwards, their sales momentum in its largest market, the US, slowed and the UK followed shortly after. The company blamed a lack of new charm designs and promised innovation expansion into necklaces, earrings and rings would support sales growth. In reality, the management team had enjoyed a golden run but failed to invest in advertising and product planning to manage the brand's growth sustainably. A largely Danish management team had difficulty steering the company from a historically wholesale model towards its future as a vertically integrated global brand and retailer. And as sales trends weakened, Pandora encountered conflict between its distribution channels, multi-brand jewellery shops, franchise Pandora concept stores and company-owned stores and became over-reliant on promotional events to drive sales. They were slow to invest in e-commerce and relied on third parties, in part because of its history of doing so, a complicated global distribution structure and issues arising with franchisees and wholesale partners over lost sales in their stores when a brand pushes its own centralised e-commerce offering. To offset slowing growth, the company continued to open new stores <coughs> and acquired franchise stores, thereby increasing sales and margins. Pandora itself sells to the wholesale price to the franchisees, and acquiring franchise stores allowed Pandora to capture the full retail selling price and retail margin. However, investors grew circumspect as same-store sales trends deteriorated, signalling a future decline was likely. And frustrated by the declining share price, Pandora announced large share buyback plans, clinging to historical sales and margin levels instead of taking the difficult decision to accept lower profits and invest in building capabilities and a brand image for longer-term success. By late 2018, with the stock having fallen about 65-75% to 75% from 2016 highs, the Pandora Boy board appointed a new CEO and the company initiated a turnaround plan, which encompassed a brand relaunch <coughs> with increasing media spend across traditional and online media, reducing wholesale inventory through a product buyback and controlling selling, reducing the number of products offered and having more product at lower prices, reducing the number of sales events, improving in-store merchandise including themes, colour and product displays, improving the functionality and appeal of the online store, and cost reductions in manufacturing, head office and technology. The company hired new talent with global brand experience into its merchandising team and marketing function and is now in the process of centralising its e-commerce team. More recent leadership hires have strengthened operation in the Chinese business. The impact of the plan through 2019 was significant sales declines as promotions were cut and shipments to wholesalers reduced. However, in the final quarter of last year, the company reported a small unexpected sales decline as increased media spend helped to drive both in-store and e-commerce sales and signaled to us that the plan was starting to work. This year's coronavirus pandemic has impacted sales as stores were closed. However, e-store sales grew by 176% in the second quarter, an exceptional result. We would expect this shift to be positive for Pandora as the e-store is very profitable with low shipping costs and return rates. Today, investors are debating how Pandora will emerge in 2021, whether the turnaround plan will return the company to growth and what level of profitability is sustainable. If Pandora succeeds, 
in recruiting a new generation of charm collectors, we expect it will enjoy another multi-year period of growth and prove a successful investment. Now finally to healthcare. And our resident virologist, Dr Bianca Ogden, has produced a piece called A Diversified Vaccination Strategy Needs to Be Our Plan A. And it really refers specifically to what we're doing here in Australia. The fact the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus causes asymptomatic infection makes it very unlikely we'll be able to eradicate it without a combination of vaccines and therapeutics. While border closes can help us feel safe, it's not reality. We have to start living with this virus and we have to implement a diversified vaccination strategy. In addition, new therapeutics will be available in due course that should also be part of the strategy to combat the virus, given it's unlikely that vaccines will offer 100% protection in everyone. European countries have realised that life has to go on despite rising infections. Governments in Europe are favouring regional restrictions depending on infection rates. Wearing a mask is second nature, as is carrying sanitizer. At the same time, governments are diversifying vaccine options, so we may see a similar strategy when it comes to therapeutics. What worries us is the limited transparency here in Australia. We're in a bubble if we think we can eradicate the virus forever, and that should not be our plan A. So far, the Australian government has secured doses of the AstraZeneca Oxford University vaccine candidate with manufacturing support from CSL and has supported the University of Queensland's vaccine candidate. As we've seen in recent weeks, side effect profile of vaccines and developments can vary. And in future, we may also see protective immunity differ between the young and the old, as well as those who are immunocompromised. We believe it would be prudent to also secure access to additional vaccines based on different technologies, such as mRNA-based vaccines, protein subunit vaccines that are combined with an adjuvant, an agent that may be added to a vaccine to produce the immune response. Now, the supply of any of these vaccines will be tight, and in addition, we expect there to be several waves. The first wave will be the rapid response vaccines based on the first generation of mRNA vaccines that were designed within days of the viral sequence becoming available. You might call these prototypes where manufacturing can be scaled up quickly and the product is a little bit rough around the edges. The second wave will likely be next generation mRNA vaccines as well as vaccines based on other technologies, e.g. adenovirus and protein subunits combined with adjuvant technology. These vaccines are more refined, should be more effective, elicit longer immunity and potentially be better formulated for easier storage and transport. These vaccines are expected to become available mid to late next year and we believe they should be part of any countrywide vaccination strategy. And then there are the third wave of vaccines, which will be about seasonality, as well as combining it, for example, with flu vaccines. For us, a sound strategy to combat coronavirus will be to have access to several of these, like the UK government has done, as well as considering lo local manufacturing as part of a longer-term pandemic preparedness plan. The UK also has an option on a batch of neutralising antibodies, so it really covers all the bases given what we're now seeing in terms of activity for these antibody drugs. We applaud CSL for stepping up to task and supporting the manufacturing of the AstraZeneca Oxford University vaccine candidate. However, we also see a very reasonable case for establishing a local mRNA manufacturing footprint, particularly in partnership with relevant companies. This would secure access to mRNA SARS-CoV-2 vaccines as well as future mRNA-based combination vaccines, such as personalised cancer vaccines. In June 2020, the, government, the German government invested €300 million Euros in CureVac, while in mid-September, another €375 million Euros was given to BioNTech. Manufacturing mRNA has cost advantages and could be an interesting future industry, not just for vaccines, but also for mRNA therapeutics. In our view, 
Combating the virus is a multi-phase battle that requires different generations of vaccines as well as therapeutic approaches. And hence, we would encourage the Australian government to have a multi-phase response. We do not want to find ourselves in a situation where other countries are well ahead with vaccination, while we watch from afar, having not yet established a solid Plan A. So food for thought to end there with. And as I mentioned at the beginning, the full Platinum Trust quarterly report for the September 2020 quarter is available on our website under investment updates. So please have a read of the, of the fuller report. And we do hope that this audio version was helpful for you. Thank you.